the lie that poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the pv podcast i'm hannah and i'm an india and we are we hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick and I have been Anindya Vichardvi. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr H Fitz and me at Dr Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians and this has been the State of the Theory. Thank you. Theory Doctors. Hello. Welcome back. We have a special guest today. News alert. News alert. Friend of the pod. Hello. Hello. Dr. Kate Cross. Hi. Psychologist, scientist, lovely human being. Oh, well, thank you very much. (laughs) And thank you for having me. Glad to have you. And what are we talking about? Well, we've spent many months kind of having informal, fun, interesting, lively discussions and conversations kind of amongst our our little field, group of friends, colleagues, um, about this question of gender and sex and differences and how these questions are studied um, in disciplinary terms. And I think all of our debates are really friendly but we have highlighted that there's a really important conversation that could happen and to our knowledge hasn't happened in such a public forum yet. Um, A lot of discussions around gender and sex happen within disciplinary confines and don't necessarily speak to each other in a way that we think that they could. Um, And this is especially important, I think, given a lot of the discourse that happens on social media now around gender Um, and certainly the kind of increase or rise in prominence of um, transgender issues and trans rights, um, the way that that discourse is very public now on social media, we think that it's time for academics to weigh in. Yes, to compare, compare and contrast how the various academic disciplines conceptualize sex, sex differences, conceptualize gender, gender differences, how these two are different, are they different, what is at stake for maintaining the difference between gender and sex, what is at stake for dissolving the difference between gender and sex. Um, Among the three of us in this room, we represent three different positions within the humanities through sciences spectrum, so I'm probably the closest to a straight-up, scientifically illiterate humanities person. Hannah is halfway in the middle, would you say, Hannah? Yeah, I'm a bit of a tart. Um, and Kate is... The closest to a humanities illiterate scientist. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, and, and to use Kate's wonderful phrase, which applies to Hannah as well as to Kate, probably less to me, you are... Epistemologically promiscuous. <laughs> Which is a great phrase to have. Mm-hmm. That's a t-shirt. Mm. A very carefully proofread t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and we're doing this this week specifically because this week marks the 150th birthday of Marie Curie, mm-hmm. which was a sort of strangely forgotten, overlooked, certainly in mainstream media event. Um, I think more could have been made of this this moment, and we're look, thinking of this moment, or using this moment to think about, you know, what is what is involved in the question that you'd so love to hear an answer. What, why is why are there not enough women in science? What can be done about it? Do, do I need to answer this question right now? Do you, or do do you, <laughs> definitively. Yes. Right. The final answer. Uh, I've just got to nip outside the room for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> Run. 
But I mean, I guess. So, would it be fair to say that the implication behind the question "Why are there not more women in science?" involves that women implies rather that women do science differently from men. Uh, is that the implication? I think it's an argument that is quite often made. I think a lot of the discussion that I've been hearing recently is much less fortunately about women's abilities to do science or women's interest in science and much more about how science as a career path is positioned within a society in general and how things like the the way in which science functions serves to make it quite an unhealthy place for many people and how that might impact, affect women in particular. Um, and the flip side of that is how the presence of these supposedly absent women would change hmm. the world of science. Yes. Yeah, we've got a lot to do. <laughs> <laughs> got to fix the problems. Yeah, I think I see... So there are a lot of... Um, I don't know, I think that it's often unspoken but assumed that if we get more women... If we somehow get more women, <laughs> and it's always a very passively phrased thing, get more women and put them in science, and it will make science better somehow, and it's always not... It's always put that way. It's not a case of... Is the fact that we have fewer women just a symptom of something else, something bigger being wrong mm. that needs to be put right? Not How could science benefit from getting more women? It always seems to be phrased that way rather than... So, this is fascinating because... And Hannah, you know, yeah. jump in. I feel like I'm talking too much already. Uh, but from the as the humanities person in the room, if you like, my position is instinctively almost the kind of knowledge that is produced by men will be different from the kind of knowledge that is produced by women as the kind of knowledge produced by white people will be different from the kind of knowledge produced by non-white people. And if you only have one group of people producing knowledge, then only one type of knowledge will be produced. trying to phrase what I'm thinking and it's I think there are a good few scientists not necessarily me because I haven't figured out what I think about this yet but there are a good few scientists who would say there's no reason to suspect that the science produced by different groups of people would be different um, that you know mm -hmm. the the ideal that's put forward is often of this context-free knowledge production that shouldn't be yeah. affected by where you're coming from. Well, that's I the mean, purpose I of the scientific method. Yeah. Yeah. Is yeah. The scientific method is designed to remove the self from the production of mm. the knowledge. That's the philosophy mm. behind the way the scientific method mm. is done. You could have another yeah. argument about whether that ever actually works that way. But um, is this an argument that, generally speaking, happens in science? And I'm using <laughs> big scare quotes. <laughs> big scare quotes. Um, yes, I think... We have a whole load of different arguments that seem to be coming across each other. So you have... You have people who make the case that there should be more women in science because women are equally capable... Yes. ...capable yes. Uh, as men of producing this knowledge yes. Yes. because it shouldn't be yes. gendered who can do it and who can't. But then that sort of undermines those who are making the argument that we should get more women into science because that would change science somehow because mm -hmm. in according to that argument it shouldn't 
so you get these it's very inconsistent i yeah. think the the arguments that are made about why and how and is there a difference then between difference and hierarchy as it were in other words to say that women would produce different signs mm. isn't to say that women would produce worse signs or better signs just that there are gaps yeah there are gaps in the life experience of mm. scientists whoever you are mm. well, i think the the example that gets brought up the most is um well the examples are things like drug testing yeah. and um crash test dummies that were based on the average adult man's anatomy yeah. and therefore seat belts and car designs were not functioning in a way that yeah. would be optimal for women's bodies yeah. because the bodies that were the dummies were made were representative of the average man not the average woman and things like um I was on an advisory panel recently about women in agriculture and a lot of the safety equipment found on farms is built for men and it is not built for women. And so you have this... Because of women not being represented, there are scientific and engineering questions yeah. that are solved in a way that benefits men much more than women. And drug testing and dosages yeah. are also an example of that mm. but it's not that's not who does the science it's necessarily yeah. it's who the science is for in scare quotes but and how presumably what problems are recognized as problems oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. so yeah. like i remember think we were talking about this earlier today before the before we started recording of a particular memory i have which is a very vague memory of listening to someone talk about observed gender differences or sex differences and mm. we'll come to the distinction between the two in a second in animals mm. and you know really interesting talk about how um if it was monkeys i think it might have been but i can't remember exactly what species how male monkeys and female monkeys act differently mm. and while i was listening to the talk and finding it fascinating as as a humanities critical theory person mm. my instinctive reaction almost was how do you know that you aren't seeing those differences because you know that monkey is male and that monkey is female mm. and surely for you to be able to know that you'd have to do it gender blind somehow mm. is that an example of the limits of the scientific method or is that not connected I think depending on the species <laughs> it might be it might be possible to recruit somebody to do the observation and score behaviors who wouldn't necessarily know yeah but it's a it's a problem to be solved yeah. and I think it's one that should be recognized that if you are if you are a human observer then you're bringing a whole bunch of experiences that are going to inform how you do your observation but is that not then another case for why we need more women in science as it were because the scientist is also an observer broadly yes with regard to that specific question i think a lot of the the stereotypes and the biases that are found yeah. about men and women are held by scientists yeah. of any gender. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so changing your coda wouldn't necessarily help, but making yeah. them blind to the sex of the monkey would. Yes. That was very specific. That was very specific. <laughs> well, there's, I mean, there's a question here about where, what part of knowledge production, what stage in the process of knowledge production does an identity like a gender identity mm. come into play. Mm. And I think from the humanities perspective that it, it the interest in terms of the source and the relation, the connection between the identity and the knowledge is different from this argument that Kate's talking about around, um, you know, this 
these two contradictory positions that women will enhance science because they will produce different, you know, lady style knowledge. (laughs) Whereas in the humanities, there's this idea that, you know, um, there's a support for that kind of idea. But then the flip side is that women could do, can do all the women can do anything a man can do, Mm. you know, and that, that kind of Rosie, the riveter Mm. trope (laughs) where, it seems like actually that's not quite, neither one is actually mm. the point, which I think mm. is where you guys have gotten to with this conversation. The point is that women's lives are structured with a s- certain mm. set of interests, needs, and a lot of those are culturally and socially designed. Um, and certainly there's a politics to that. And so the things that interest women or the interventions in a woman's daily life are different because of social and cultural reasons, not necessarily because of biological reasons, Mm. although there are some of those, um, you know, women menstruate, for example. But the the kind of social world in which a woman's research interests might develop is of interest. And so really it's about what kinds of questions and topics and Mm. interventions women are thinking about. And... that has something to do with this gender as a social construct idea, but also something to do with the the pragmatic, practical aspects of a woman just l- collecting experiences mm. and then devising, you know, an invention or thinking of a, a drug to target a certain thing. Or and they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. It's just that sometimes the rhetoric, you know, we, you and I would call it a discourse in like the narrow Foucault sense of a discourse, limits the ways that we can frame this as a gender issue. Um, on that note, might it be useful for each of us from our different disciplines to talk a little about how our discipline views gender and sex? and how, to what extent we agree or disagree as individuals within that discipline. Okay. So, um, I would say that sex and gender are both classifications that can be made about a person. Neither of them is a thing that exists objectively within mm. you that I can then mm. come along and measure the mm. decisions that we make about categorizing people and sex is a categorization that is made on I'm going to use the scare quotes I'm drawing them um, biological features um, it is supposedly um, that on a species-wide level, a male produces smaller gametes than a female. Um, But in practice, if you categorise an animal, whether a human or any other animal, as male or female, you're probably doing it by observing external um, features. And it's known that it's not a straightforward it's always going to be easy to classify as either male or female that there are going to be other individuals but that distinction is often lost because we're usually talking in shorthand of some kind or another Um, gender is even more complicated (laughs) um, because it's a classification that we only make for humans and not for other animals um I can't think of anyone who classifies other animals according to gender. And it's much more um, contested. It's much more... You can own, you, you can either go by what the individual says about themselves, uh, you can go by what other people think about how the individual presents, you can do some sort of mishmash of the two... Um, in practice, what we do is we ask people to tick a box. <laughs> um, you know, female, male, other, please elaborate if you wish, and I don't want to say. 
But in those tick boxes, that doesn't indicate a different. Like, is the, are you ticking boxes, or are you asking participants to tick boxes, separate boxes for sex and gender? Sometimes it depends on. Um it depends on what the research question is. It depends on how clued up the researcher is. Mm. It depends mm. on yeah why they want to know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's one of the. This is one of the things that just sort of keeps coming up. For me, is when we ask. Uh, so I sit on the ethics committee of the psychology department where I work, and. So I will review lots and lots of studies that include a gender option or they won't even use the word sex or gender it might be tell us whether you're male female other etc and the first thing that i want to know is always well why do they want to know and is this is this sufficient for what they are trying to do are they is i can't remember where i'm going with this it's it's always incomplete yeah um, and I think there are some researchers who are more aware than others of how incomplete the questions are yes that was a very good summary oh good. I have a question for you mm. the kind of the old school distinction which I think you've mm. described with more nuance um, and clarity between gender and sex mm. um, is that the categories then that go along with sex are male and female mm. and the categories that go along with gender are men and women, mm. um, which is certainly how I was taught at my very liberal hippy-dippy <laughs> girls' school in the San Francisco Bay Area. Mm. And I have grown up drawing a distinction not just between these definitions of sex and gender, but also between the terms that we use when yeah. we're referring to one or the other. But I find it quite interesting working in social science where we we also have colleagues who do surveys that are fairly similar mm. um, to the kinds of surveys and research questions that I think you guys ask um, where the question is what is your gender mm. please pick male or female mm. is that a conversation or a debate or have is that something that and I don't know if it's just an American thing or a California thing or uh, so that right so that phrasing of the categories in that question, I think, would be quite common. Um, however, if you were talking about people in a write-up of a study, I would refer... If I was dealing with adults, I would refer to them as men and women, and never as males and females. Mm -hmm. um, I would use males and females if I were talking about animals. Um, there's also the tricky... Dis I think there is... One time when I might use males and females to refer to humans, and it would be if I was tired of writing girls and women, <laughs> yeah. boys and men. Yeah. Um, but if I'm talking about adults, it would be men and women. If I'm mm. talking about children, it would be girls and boys. Um, and I find it... This is completely personal, but I just find it jarring to talk about people as males and females. And I'm aware that I'm using humans and people <laughs> because... <Yeah. laughs> You know, humans as opposed to other animals and people, meaning, you know, who I'm usually writing about. Um, I, just following on from that, mm. in our discipline, there is uh, a really interesting sort of reflection of that, which is what word do you put in advance of the word writer? Mm. So do you talk about most people in our discipline would inherently, in sort of uh, almost by instinct recoil at the thought of a female writer mm. we talk about women writer mm. but partly because of the patriarchy of grammar men writer doesn't work mm. so do you talk about male writers and women writers do you talk about male writers and female writers mm. 
again, I can't, I, I don't know whether, who I'm speaking for apart from me, but I was like, you know, male and female as modifying a noun, yes. fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, not males and females. Yeah. I guess, in, I mean, in terms of uh, sort of my own cards on the table, I guess I would err uh, more on the that we need to work towards collapsing the distinction between gender and sex and recognise that and I know I'm using loaded words deliberately mm. but recognise that even if sex is a biological thing our view, our interpretation of the biology is necessarily influenced by all sorts of social, political, cultural connotation stereotypes that mean that we may as well collapse the distinction between the two because maintaining the distinction to me suggests that we are entertaining the possibility that we as observers, as critics, as people, as human beings, as animals, whatever, have any access to a kind of pure pure biology, if you like, outside and beyond and without culture? I would say yes and no about that. And just because I'm a woman who accesses healthcare yeah. on a regular basis. And um, the number of times I see a young, a young male doctor yeah. who has very little idea of what's going on in terms of any sort of like actual practical yes. yes common sense knowledge is you know too high for me to feel comfortable with but frankly. isn't isn't that an argument for thinking about cultural stereotypes and questioning knowledge about gender and sex rather than not yes but i think uh, on a kind of the mechanics of my body yeah and I think this is where some trans activists have made really interesting points yes. about medicine and also where really progressive, kooky, forward-thinking medics are thinking yeah. about medicine in terms of individual care that is at the, designed based on a person's kind of genetic makeup. These things are fascinating yeah. and go some way to making making gender an individual experience for every person that is that takes into account the biology yeah. of your individual body yes, yes. and the technology would allow for you yourself to be treated based on your unique yeah. body. Yeah. And there is some argument to suggest that that kind of medicine would break down some of these, these barriers, yeah. but like on a mechanical, I mean, I don't know if you, what experiences you've had accessing healthcare as a lady but it's mm. definitely hit or miss. Yeah. And it's something that I think, you know, once you get to know a woman fairly well, it's mm. something you talk about. You talk about how you deal with your period and the pain that's involved. You talk about if you have to see a doctor because you have any sort, you know, any sort of condition, endometriosis yeah. or ovarian cysts or um, hormonal imbalances. I mean, and anything that affects women's bodies whether or not the social constructs around us determine whether we pay more money over the course mm. of our lifetimes for tampons mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. that tax money goes to you know pro-life charity whatever you know yeah. that's the social bit but like when when i get into the exam room and my feet are in the stirrups and i'm bare from the waist down that's where biology comes into play here and all the Foucault that I know and love and spout to my students goes out the window. But does it though? Isn't it all always there in the way you are positioned with your feet in the stomach? Literally. Literally. Literally positioned. Yeah. I'm doing it for those of you who can't <laughs> see. I mean, from just to use that as a, as a, as a, you know, just one example. I, I mean. Yes, but I think, what yeah. I think though is this is a. a what I'm talking about is the lazy general reading of Foucault that yes. doesn't take into account yes. the nuances of his argument. Okay. Um, also, you are unique in that you don't make those lazy... 
readings <laughs> and interpretations. But a lot of the, a lot of the really mediocre crap you read on yeah. social media forums about gender don't take into account the complexity of the the critical theory that you mm. and I are talking about. Um, that determines the experience I have. Yeah. In the clinic. I mean, we've 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 spoken on this podcast multiple times about as as people who are interested in and invested in particular forms of critical theory of moments in quote unquote real life where we come up against the limits of theory. We come up against moments where theory doesn't really help us. Theory theoretical tools haven't really developed. And the example you gave about trans healthcare for trans people is a is a perfect example of that. Which is for all of the critical theory influenced some nuanced, some not so nuanced ideas about biology doesn't matter and social construction is everything, blah, 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 blah. It is medicine that allows someone who was born into a body that was identified at birth as one sex but wants to live as another sex. It is medicine that... Is it gender or is it sex? It's gender or sex. Which one is it? But for that person, in order to improve that person's life, perhaps, maybe, that's not the most important question. The most important question is, can medicine give you, or can technology, can any form of knowledge, give you the tools that you require to live as close to a life as you want to live? Well, now that's just a philosophical question about technology, isn't it? Is it? Not a bad question. I, I mean, I guess, sorry. I think it's an excellent question. I'm quite confused. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I guess I just... I don't know. I don't know which way I'm arguing, if I'm arguing any one no. way. <laughs> it's... I don't know where I was going. But I think... No, but I think you're absolutely right, because a lot of this debate comes... You know, is is very much about people really feeling emotionally attached to the categories mm. or to the an identity that is shared mm. socially and culturally that is mm. recognizable amongst the people with whom you live and interact. Um, a f- and people get really, really um, weirdly attached and obsessed with categorizing other people. Mm. And gender is yeah. one of those mm. w- one of those categories and I th- you know you read about about trans experiences and and there's a lot of really good insight written by trans activists and writers a- about what this is mm. what this does mm. to them and the kind of observations they make about us. And people are really attached to this like I need to know if you're a man or a woman. Mm. I need to know who you have sex with. I need to know, like, I, mm. and it's really a strange need, isn't it? Mm. That and I, and that question that you've posed, which is that actually, what we're really interested in is how people are able to access, whether it's healthcare or whether it's economic stability, that allows them to live a life that is as close to the life they want. Versus, are they a man or a woman? You know, and. and and there's a higher order question versus a, a lower order question. And I think academics are just as guilty about, and, and this is what we were talking about because we've talked about the radical turf feminists quite a bit mm-hmm. because they do make this biological argument that, you know, if you're born a woman, that is one kind of woman. And if you become a woman through transition, right, that's their framing. I, that's not my position, but that's mm-hmm. how they describe it. You know, there's a, they draw a distinction between you're born a woman is defined by others, your doctor, your mom, whoever, and then you become a woman. Whereas you and I would talk about it as you're born a woman, whether your doctors define you as a woman or not. And that distinction is a really serious, like, that's a debate that's really emotional. On that note, if I, Kate, when mm. you were talking earlier about tick boxes and mm. depending on the study you would you would tailor the tick or, or mm. people in in psychology as a discipline would generally t- tailor tick boxes differently mm. if you let's say you are doing a study about and i'm going to expose my ignorance here 
sex differences in whatever context. Mm. And you do that study, and as part of that study, you have tick boxes for male, female, other, police state, whatever. Mm. Would you... F- how would you feel about someone ticking male if they were identified as a different sex or a different gender and had transitioned? Is that something that would be seen as complicating the story? Is that would be seen as sort of Mm. making the data less clean? And obviously I'm using Mm. loaded words deliberately here. Mm -hmm. (sighs) So, let's say, for sake of argument, you're interested in whether people feel comfortable speaking up in workplace meetings and whether that depends on their gender. You'd probably be more interested in knowing what their gender is now. Yes. Um, than anything else. Yes. So you would, you wouldn't, that would not be considered a problem. I'm doing yeah. scare quotes again. Yeah. Um, from the point of view of that researcher, yeah. if you had a very specific hypothesis about hormone levels before birth yeah. and how that influenced say spatial cognition yes um as occasionally happens then you might try and estimate something that correlates that based on the ratio of the second and fourth fingers which i personally wouldn't do uh, but uh <laughs> it's a thing that is done i should say and that you're actually looking at your fingers i am as actually you're doing looking this. at my fingers as i do this um and you would probably uh, that researcher might be much more interested in knowing the sex that somebody was assigned at birth and they might or might not think to ask do you still identify as that gender and that's now? a fascinating question yeah point isn't it if mm. if they think not to if they don't think to ask mm. that it's might well change the a results. huge problem um the problem i think is that we don't think to ask yeah um and i have caught myself on more than one occasion not thinking of something that I really should have done um once so I've done some work on aggression physical aggression and I asked questions about how many times people had say shouted yelled slapped somebody uh, whatever in the last 12 months And at the end of my questionnaire, and I do this for all of my studies now, I have a free response box that just says, is there anything else you want to tell me? And that's it. And somebody wrote, I'm a wheelchair user. I'm I'm not going to kick anyone. Uh, And I thought, oh, did not think of that at all. And this has probably got a lot to do with the fact that I am able-bodied myself. I spend my time interacting with other people who are not wheelchair users and it just had not occurred to me and it will now, it will now yeah. and I'm really glad that that person I have no yeah. idea about yeah. their identity but I'm very glad they told yeah. me because I can now incorporate that knowledge into anything that I design in the future um, but this is the thing so much of what I see being done within my discipline is tick boxes look at scales you know, answer one to five yeah. on do you strongly yeah. agree? And there's no space for somebody to say, actually, I couldn't answer this question because the categories don't apply to me or anything. And does that bring us then back to the f- question we started with, which is why might there be a need for more women in science? In other words, why might there be a need for more categories yeah. represented among scientists? Because, mm. as you said yourself, had you been a wheelchair user, you would have framed that question that question differently, That's presumably. True. Yeah. Yeah. And then that presumably will lead to different kinds of knowledge yeah. based on the results of such questionnaires. Or is that too far a gap leap? <laughs> it's not too far a leap. It's I don't see I <sighs> I think I hadn't thought to ask, you know, will we create different sorts of knowledge? My suspicion is that that's... 
my suspicion is that it's not a case of making science more representative because we're going to learn staggering new truths that we never could have learned otherwise. It's more a case of, I think it's the right thing to do. And yeah. I have yeah. more of a general yes. feeling of... Yes. It's not... So when I'm... If I'm designing a study or a questionnaire to go out there and be interacted with by people, I don't want that to have the effect on someone of making them feel marginalised yes. by what I'm doing. That's, yes. And I want to avoid that not because I think it's going to be beneficial to my science in yes. some nebulous way. I think I, I have a responsibility to the people I interact with to not, not make them feel marginalised more than you know, yes. anything. Brilliant answer. Exactly true. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted to go back to a point we were making slightly earlier about mm. um, social construction or otherwise of categories, mm. because, and I, I face this problem or issue, maybe problems, putting it too strongly, quite a lot in teaching, when trying to persuade my students of the social aspect, social construction aspect of gender or race or sexuality mm. or even, let's say, sex, um, and making the case that to describe race as a social const construct isn't to trivialize it. Mm. Because that's the immediate reaction quite often, which is, if it is a social construct, then it doesn't matter. Yeah, or it's not even real. Or it's not even real. But that, uh. I mean, that is that is something that we need to challenge, right? That mm. to say something is a social construct doesn't mean it's not real. Doesn't mean that people aren't killed about it. Those mm. two can go together. It doesn't have to be objective, right. simply physical, simply biological, without a social aspect to it for it to matter. Mm. Something that comes up so much. With so the the perennial question that I get asked is, do you think differences between men and women that you find in your research are biological yeah. or social? And with that comes this whole other raft of unspoken things. Yeah. Of if you think it's biological, then you think it's never going to change, and if yeah. you think it's biological, then you think that the positions that men and women occupy in society should not change yeah. under any circumstance. Yeah. And if you think that it's socially constructed, then, well, you're a woolly-headed feminist and yeah. what are you doing in science in the first place? Yeah. And it drives me absolutely up the wall because I, it's not a clear distinction to yes. start with and I don't think that any of these things follow. And... Oh yeah, to say something that's a social construct doesn't mean it doesn't matter. And to say something that has some sort of biological mechanism involved in it somewhere doesn't necessarily mean that it is determined absolutely by <laughs> unchangeable forces. Yeah. It's so much more subtle than that, but I think that often gets erased by both sides. Yeah. I think you have people who will like our Google hero who yeah. will point to, you know, the the literature on sex differences and say, well, science says that men and women are biologically different and therefore stop agitating for change. <laughs> and women are just bad, bad at, at being yeah. software developers. Just, and mm. So that's why they aren't software developers. Yeah. Leaving, behind, leaving aside reality entirely. And, just, and the evidence. Mm. So is it then the challenge, going back to the rather crude example I used about, you know, what medical technologies can help improve trans lives, is it the... So I guess one of the things that links this, the brigade of biological determinism, everything is biology hmm. group, like our Google Hero, or the... A caricature of the woolly-headed feminist who mm. thinks it's all social construction and nothing mm. else. Uh, 
I don't think either any of us here are in either of these groups. But what is common to both of these groups is that neither, and we could use this use gender as an example or race as an example, faced with the, you know, we talked about sexual harassment over the last two episodes, mm. faced with the sexual harasser, the rapist, or fakes faced with the racist thug. Neither of these allows a decent response, right? You can't say to a racist thug, actually, I know you want to beat me up because I'm not white, but did you know that race is a social construct? <laughs> <laughs> um, and the same for gender, right? Yeah. That it, it, and, and that's the problem with both of these extremes, that if we are in the business of trying to make a better world, and I say this fully aware of the naivety of that sentence, <laughs> Neither of these help us fight prejudice. And they are fundamentally conservative in the sense that they they don't ask questions that lead us to thinking about these questions in a more nuanced or different way. They don't move us forward or sideways or, you know, in any sort of direction. They keep us in the same place and they reproduce the kind of political worlds that exist around them. And, and and reproduce a particular caricature view of academic disciplines as yeah. being stationary mm. in some way, siloed in the, you know, mm. you in your psychology building. I'm completely objective, you know. Yes. <laughs> and, you, and you have a labyrinth that you use to experiment on human beings. No, they don't. Absolutely That's true. <laughs> and you in your geography building. Doing. doing literally nothing, <laughs> colouring in maps. Yeah, and me and my English building just reading books and mm. creating a world of objectively good literature. <laughs> and all of us are in our groups not talking to each other. Like, that's mm. the caricature, right? That's mm. the And that's the caricature that if we are going to draw this sort of slightly tenuous connection. But I think that is the caricature that ultimately helps to helps to create a world where someone like Michael Gove can talk about Britain being tired of experts because experts mm. are seen as isolated within their ivory tower university mm. offices surrounded by papers or books or maps or whatever it is and, and not interacting with each other or the outside world. Mm. We've spoken about this in, pre in previous episodes, but I think there is a connection there, right? Absolutely. Um, and I think it's something that comes up in particular when, whenever questions about sex and gender are discussed there is a very much a well the scientists have one way of understanding it which has got a lot of numbers in it but is you know not very useful <laughs> or not related to real life at all and then the humanities have got a completely different way of understanding it and we have no common language a lot of the time I get a lot of um you know, some of the more vociferous things that I've heard have been people talking about gender and sex using completely different kinds of language and just saying, well, these people just don't understand what I'm trying to do here, um, which is sad. I try not to go into too many specifics. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was at a scientific conference some years ago where someone gave a talk about... Um, and this person was self-described as an evolutionary psychologist and was giving a talk about the differences, sex differences that were biological in origin and not socially constructed at all. And I, I was sitting in this talk thinking, well, this is a little bit, um, this is a little bit extreme. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and a hand went up at the end of the talk and I thought, aha, perhaps... Perhaps somebody is going to challenge this thesis slightly. No. The question that was asked was, well, given all this amazing evidence that you've presented that sex differences are biological, how can we counter this pervasive myth that social roles have got anything to do with it? And I, which he, he answered totally seriously. And I, I hovered around afterwards and said, do you not think um, that, you know, if there are maybe some small differences that have a biological component to them, that the social culture that we find ourselves in might actually amplify or, you know, reinforce or that, that, that it's got some role to play. And I thought I was being very um, 
restrained yeah, here. I thought yeah. I was putting forward a very mild version of yeah. maybe culture is important. And the look he gave me just made me think, I don't know why I bothered with this, because it was very much, oh, sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I'm bothering to talk to you. This, this reminds me, years and years ago at a conference, um, someone was giving a paper about uh, some... I guess if they were social scientists, they might call it participant observation. There was sort of mm. a critical, creative, creative writing, creative art, humanities kind of person, so they didn't call it that. But they spent time in a hospital, and they started the paper by saying how medicine is problematic and medical expertise is problematic. And that was their position when they went in mm. to do the research, and they came out having not changed their position at all. And you sort of go, like, you can't just... There, there has to be more complexity to research than to go, this is what I think, and this is how everything, what I've done, has proved what I think the thought was right. Mm. And it's these these flip side of the same mm. same coin, yeah. as it were. Yeah. I mean, I've also had somebody tell me that they think what I'm doing is worthwhile as long as what I'm doing is trying to prove that there are no fundamental gender differences. I thought that's fascinating. What does that mean? <laughs> and, and I just it's trying to prove that there are no differences. I just thought was very I I would like to think that I'm not actually trying to prove anything that I've already decided. I think I'm <laughs> trying to get a handle on what's going on in a more general sense, but psychology I think is where these you within the same discipline you get both extreme both extremes yeah. represented about what sex and gender are and what where where the influences come from and what it means and so it's I mean, maybe it's a good place to have that argument because it is already... You've got a diversity of opinions represented within that discipline, but you've also got um, ways of a approaching the question that maybe aren't permitted within those walls, which is one of the things that we've talked about. Yes. I think that might be a good point to stop. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thank thanks you. For, thanks yeah. for appearing on our little podcast. Thanks for having me. And we will see you guys next time. Um, let us know what you think, if you're scientists, if you're not, if you're humanities people. Uh, let us know. Talk to Gently, us. Gently, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want to give your Twitter... Oh, yeah. Uh, I am at Catherine Cross, and it's Catherine spelt in the way that uh, was thought up with before social media. So it's C A T H A R I N E C R O S. Please don't tweet Catherine Cross spelt the other way because she gets very confused. <laughs> cool. We will see you next time. Bye. 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 We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?